This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today, I'm delighted to have two guests on my podcast. I have Drs. Jackie Osborne and Terry Ellis, who are co-chairs of the American Physical Therapy Association Parkinson's Guideline Development Group. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us, Alan. Happy to be here. Dr. Osborne is with Brooks Rehab Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida. And Dr. Ellis is with Boston University Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. And today we're going to talk about the physical therapist management of Parkinson's disease clinical practice guideline, which they just uh, published in PTJ. So let me start by congratulating you. I thought it was a really well done, very clear, nicely summarized uh, CPG. And I look forward to discussing it with the two of you. Great. Let's start by talking a little bit about, about the background. You mentioned in the article that over a million people in the U.S. have been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So not surprisingly, it's a large um, prevalence. And you talked about a higher prevalence in individuals who are white and Hispanic as compared to those with African or Asian backgrounds and descent, which I wasn't aware of. And so my first question that just piqued me was, are these racial differences, do you think, or are these differences in access? I think this is a really important question. So in the United States, the incidence of Parkinson's disease by race is, is difficult to isolate from disparities in, in healthcare utilization, which affects the actual occurrence uh, among different ethnic groups. And so I think because of this, it's unclear if there's a biological basis that might explain that lower prevalence among those of African or Asian descent or if it's due to disparities in, in healthcare utilization. I think that when we hear about racial disparities in healthcare, we tend to hear about the, the lower access to needed care among minority groups. And according to this review, a lower prevalence of Parkinson's disease has been identified among those of African or Asian descent, as you mentioned. So this could be explained by a lack of access potentially to healthcare providers who can make that definitive diagnosis and, and facilitate care. And then I would just say that adding to this complexity, I think, is the fact that risk factors that influence the development of the disease are difficult to determine and, and to then link that to a biological origin. You've got environmental risk factors like pesticide and herbicide exposure, prior head injury, um, rural living. Uh, and so those things have been linked to the development of, of the disease. But then there's genetic locations that have been identified as causing symptoms related to Parkinson's. So definitely an important area of future research includes work that can provide insight into disparities that exist between racial and ethnic groups in terms of access to care, care-related resources, and if those are identified, if the differences are actually biological in nature. You mentioned um, the risk factors, and I have to say it really was striking to me that uh, I recall when I was going through my training as a physical therapist and I studied Parkinson's, I was 
really struck by the fact we don't know the causes of Parkinson's disease. That was almost 50 years ago. We still don't know the causes of Parkinson's disease. Why do you think it's so difficult to figure out the etiology of this condition? Well, I think as you, as you noted, there are several known risk factors. Some, some are, are modifiable, others could be classified as non-modifiable, like having a genetic connection to the development of symptoms. But then there's also factors known to be associated with a reduced risk of developing the disease, uh, like engaging in physical activity or caffeine consumption. I think the challenge lies in quantifying those factors and pinpointing the quantity or the dose that might result in either a higher risk of developing the disease or that might result in being protective against it. So because of this, I, it's super challenging to classify any risk factor really as major or minor or having some sort of hierarchy. Hmm. I don't know. So Terry, do we know if the benefits of aerobic and resistance training are on the symptoms of the disease or on the progression of the disease itself? Well, Alan, that's the million dollar question. And <laughs> it's, that's what every person with Parkinson's disease asks me. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's difficult to sort out. We do know our studies, you know, studies have shown that high intensity aerobic and uh, resistance training do reduce the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So there is a symptomatic effect. Um, and even studies that have, that have lasted six months to two years show a decrease in the symptoms in those people who engaged in the high intensity you know, aerobic exercise, for example, compared to not. Whether that improvement is actually represents a, a decrease in disease progression is difficult to sort out because there is no biomarker, no known biomarker in Parkinson's disease that is sensitive enough, sensitive enough to detect changes in disease progression. You've emphasized, Terry, the high intensity. What about moderate and light intensity? Is that beneficial or should it, is it yeah. not worth it? So I think when it comes to, you know, any kind of exercise, light, you know, Light intensity, moderate intensity has benefits. So exercising, you know, to some degree is, is more beneficial than not exercising. And there are known benefits in a lot of the studies we talked about in the CPG. There are many known functional benefits of moderate intensity exercise, for example. Better walking, better balance, better strength, better fitness. The question is, does high intensity have this particular added benefit with symptom reduction or a decrease in the progression of the disease. So both are effective to a certain point, but we're trying to figure out, is there an added benefit of this high intensity exercise related to the disease, you know, either symptoms or progression or both? And that is unclear, you know, and that's what, we're in the middle of a phase three trial right now, the SPARKS trial. Uh, the PI is Daniel Corcos out of Northwestern University and BU is, is one of the sites, so I'm familiar with the study. But this is a sort of a phase three, more definitive study to look at the differences between high intensity and moderate intensity aerobic exercise. And although the primary outcome is still these clinical tests of rigidity and bradykinesia, there are many secondary outcomes that look at changes in the brain, for example, uh, blood biomarkers, you know. Uh, so trying to sort of 
learn or glean, you know, whether there seems to be any impact on the progression of the disease. Okay, well, let's talk about one of the other recommendations in your CPG. You recommend that PT should use balance training, uh, and the evidence suggests that it uh, improves posture, balance, spatiotemporal gait. What about falls, which is a critical issue in older individuals? What's the evidence in support of balance training with people with Parkinson's to reduce the risks and occurrence of falls? Unfortunately, the effect of balance training on fall rate is not clear. And it's an outcome that's not always collected uh, in the studies that we reviewed for the CPG. So, so in studies where falls outcomes are collected, the results are mixed. Some studies found no effect of balance training on fall rate. Others found that only individuals with more mild disease had decreased fall rates due to balance interventions. And then people with, um, with more severe disease did not have improved fall rates. So, so there's a significant need, I think, to understand the effect of any inter intervention, really. It's balance training, aerobic training, resistance training, or some combination of these modes on fall rates at all stages of the disease process. So there really is a need for high quality research to determine which patients with Parkinson's disease benefit the most from balance training when that goal is to reduce fall risk and fall rate, uh, meaning can all individuals with Parkinson who, who fall reduce their fall rates due to balance training intervention or only those with, with mild symptoms? And then I think, I think further fall outcomes should, should probably be expanded to include like injurious falls, whether someone's injured due to the fall or not. Because falls are so complex, multifactorial, it may not be reasonable to completely reduce fall rate to a low risk classification, but perhaps falls that result in injury can be significantly reduced or eliminated. As a clinician, I would love to be able to tell my patient that when they fall, the chances that they will get up and walk away and go about their business is very high because of their participation in, a, in an appropriately dosed balance intervention. So unfortunately, uh, it's just a, a mixed result as, uh, as far as falls outcomes go. You know, in your article in the CPG, there's a nice job of talking about the balance of benefits versus risks. So let's talk a little bit about the risk side for these recommended interventions. Should people with Parkinson's disease and their therapists be concerned about adverse events for resistance exercise, high intensity, aerobic exercise, balance training? No. <laughs> you know, I think the, the benefits far, far outweigh the drawbacks. You know, of course there are mild, there, most of these studies show mild musculoskeletal issues associated with exercise, if any. Those are pretty small in number and no different than any other population really, you know, that you would expect to see when they engage in exercise. There's no evidence that there's serious adverse events, you know, associated with exercise. Now, the caveat is that in research, you're screening people, you know, so you could be screening out, you know, for high intensity aerobic training, for example, a lot of those studies had stress tests, you know, and excluded people, you know, with a cardiac condition that were at high risk. Well, but when you look at those studies, 
very few people were excluded. You know, very few people that's, were excluded. Yeah, so, that's great. Um, that's a nice, clear answer for people. But but I have to ask this this next question because we've recently published an article um, that talks about the deficiencies in the trials that are being done in physical therapy and carefully looking at adverse events. Is that a case in this literature or do people do a good job of looking for adverse events if they're there? Yeah, I mean, I think in the big clinical trials, you know, especially, you know, multi-site larger clinical trials, which are more of those in the last decade or so, then they do a very good job and, you know, carefully monitor uh, adverse events, you know. Um, so there's lots of minor aches and pains reported, you know, in the, for musculoskeletal adverse events in many of these trials, which to me means they're very carefully monitoring these. I have to say, as someone who's been reading CPGs and the literature across different disease conditions, the, the literature in Parkinson's is quite robust. It's nice to see as compared to some other areas. Um, so kudos to those of you who have been doing that work. It, uh, it does stand out when you read a, a CPG that it's, uh, the evidence base is quite robust. Yeah, and, and that has been, I would say, you know, and particularly in the last decade, you know, maybe 15 years or so, it's just exploded. And, and that has come from the animal work that was done showing, you know, the potential benefits of exercise on, on neuroprotection, on potentially slowing the progression of the disease. That stimulated a great deal of interest in, hey, this could be powerful. You know, it's not just about pharmacological uh, treatments that can have this effect. It could be in the exercise domain. We should study this. You know, and it got a lot more press because of that early work that was done. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, and it's been, um, you know, and, and now I would say, you know, exercise is part of the standard care yeah. of people with Parkinson's disease. That's nice to see. Well, let's talk about another recommendation that has to do with external cueing. And again, there is some good evidence to support that recommendation. And it has an impact on reducing the freezing of gait and improving gait outcomes. Do we know much about the most effective modes as well as the, the best dose for this intervention and how long-term the effects are? I think first, uh, I I would start with a, a definition. The definition that we use to define external cueing in the CPG includes um, external temporal or spatial stimuli like, like rhythmic auditory cueing, visual cues, verbal cues, attentional cues. Um, so there's a fairly broad definition that um, contributed to quite a bit of variation across studies in, in things like sample size and comparison groups, outcome measures. Um, that were used, and, but then the mode, the frequency, the duration, the actual dose, you know. Um, so I think, I think when you talk about the mode of, of external cueing, there's two details to consider really. One is the type of cueing, that verbal, is it visual, is it auditory? And the other is the mode during which, the exercise mode during which the cueing is delivered. Is it during overground walking, walking on the treadmill, during high challenge balance activities? So interestingly, when the outcome was to reduce that motor disease severity in people with Parkinson's disease, 
when, when different modes of external queuing were compared, no one mode rose to the top as superior to another. Um, and then there were similar findings when the outcome of interest was freezing of gait or, or gait outcomes like speed and stride and cadence. Um, so, so there really wasn't one type of queuing that kind of rose to the top. Um, and then there was some variation in, in other parameters that would, you know, so for example, um, the duration, at least 20 minutes, maybe up to an hour in duration of delivering these cues a couple times a week to five times a week for at least three weeks or up to eight weeks. So overall, external queuing provided during overground walking or treadmill training or standing balance training that included those visual, verbal, or auditory cues has an immediate and positive impact on things like mobility and turning and uh, distance walked. But unfortunately, data from longitudinal follow-up is not available. So, so that there's a, a gap there where we really need to have that long-term data to, to have a clear understanding of the lasting effects of using external cues to improve outcomes. Or if the use of external cues for one type of task or activity even carries over to other types of tasks or activities. I can imagine that's a difficult area to investigate and to tease out all the different modes and the combinations of interventions. Uh, I, I don't, uh, I wouldn't minimize how difficult that must be. What, what's the evidence in comparing um, supervised individual exercise as compared to either community-based or home-based exercise? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think this is another spot where a, a definition is important, just as with external queuing. So, so the way that we define community-based exercise is to include programs where groups of individuals exercise together or programs in which individuals followed a, a predetermined exercise program in a community setting, either in their home or in a, in a facility, in a, in a community-based location. Uh, so these programs often had an exercise component to it, um, and it wasn't necessary for that community program to be led by a physical therapist. Um, so, so these programs include all kinds of interventions, uh, or, and sometimes were combinations of modes, yoga, dance, Pilates, boxing, Tai Chi, power training. Um, and so, so when it was all distilled down, there were really only three studies that directly compared an intervention delivered in this community-based kind of group format with, where that was compared to an individual program. And so these studies showed that a community-based group format improves things like adherence and quality of life for people with Parkinson's disease. What's not clear is if that, that community-based group program serves to augment a supervised program or improves outcomes over and above a community-based program. Um, so regardless, based on the, um, the benefits of group-based exercise, PTs are definitely encouraged to recommend community-based exercises to improve both motor and non-motor symptoms. Um, there was no one mode of exercise program shown to be superior over another. Um, so one kind of community-based program really could not be recommended over another um, or instead of a supervised program, for example. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about gait training. Your CPG recommends early 
gate training. The evidence is quite robust in that area, if I read it correctly. What about in other later stages of the disease? Are there clear benefits for gate training then? Yeah, I mean, you know, we the most of the literature published in Parkinson's disease is in the mild to moderate stages. You know, H and Y, honing the R stages two and three, some ones, not so many fours and five. And so it's not so much, you know, it's more sort of an absence of, 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 of evidence. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to think that, you know, you shouldn't do gait training in the later stages, but the focus may shift. You know, early on, it's about maintaining some of the critical aspects of gait, you know, pr uh, sort of pr a prevention approach, you know, maintaining step length, maintaining some of the, you know, spatial temporal uh, aspects of gait that go wrong over time. And, you know, so you're taking up sort of a preventative um, sort of motor learning approach, whereas later in the stages of the disease, it's more of a, you know, compensatory approach, using strategies to overcome some of the, um, you know, gait deviations that are, that become, you know, more pronounced later in the course of the disease. So it's a shift in focus, uh, but no reason to think that, you know, uh, we shouldn't be doing gait training across the continuum of the disease. Yeah, it was, it was quite clear in, in your article. I thought you handled that very nicely. My last question, and, and again, I was very pleased to see that the CPG addressed behavior change. Uh, and that's not always a focus in, in a condition like Parkinson's, it's so important. And um, with the, the need to enhance self-efficacy and long-term continuation of these kinds of interventions. The evidence supports um, therapists' um, efforts at uh, enhancing behavior. Is the evidence clear what's the most efficacious approach of doing that? No, I mean, this body of work is really in its infancy in Parkinson's disease. You know, there are relatively few trials. Um, you know, it, it's clearly it just from a conceptual standpoint, you, if you have, if you live with a disease like this for decades, right, if you can live with two, three decades with Parkinson's disease, and we're, we're showing all of this data about the importance of exercise, and the only way that exercise is beneficial if, it, if it's continuously done, you know, over the course of a lifetime, you know, so this is a lifestyle change that people with Parkinson's need to make. And when we as physical therapists prescribe the exercise, it's the evidence is showing that one of the key aspects of our intervention needs to be addressing that behavior to help people with Parkinson's maintain the exercise, you know, in between episodes of care or once they're discharged. This gets back to Jackie's comments about community exercise. I mean, you know, there's a lot of more emphasis now on physical therapists partnering with exercise professionals in the community, you know, sort of discharging them to, you know, uh, exercise professionals that can help people, you know, with Parkinson's exercise successfully in the community. I think we need to figure out, uh, we need more studies to look at behavioral change and to look at, okay, how do we go about this? How do we optimize this? I mean, it's even more uh, important in Parkinson's disease and perhaps more challenging because the disease is associated with depression, apathy, cognitive changes. And so that makes it, you know, even more difficult, you know, to have the motivation to exercise, to comply over, you know, 
a period of time. Um, I do want to just say one, one other thing, Alan, that we sort of didn't explicitly talk about in the CPGs, but it's sort of inferred from all the evidence. With this robust body of evidence now supporting exercise in Parkinson's, and you know, it speaks to the need to start earlier. You know, historically, people with Parkinson's have been referred in the sort of moderate middle stages, you know, to physical therapy. And we really need to be starting earlier. You know, we need, a, we need a secondary prevention model of care where we start early, get people on board with this. If, if, if high intensity aerobic training has a neuroprotective effect, you better start early when there's more cells available to protect, right? That, that, that makes sense. And, and the high intensity aerobic exercise are in people with Parkinson's in the very early stages before they even start medication. So it's critical that we shift to seeing people early and that we don't just discharge them and wait for an acute event to happen for them to come back into the system. Why not follow people regularly over the course of- What a radical season? thought. What a radical thought. Are you <laughs> suggesting a chronic disease management model versus an acute care model? I I'm, am. I'm shocked. Yes, <laughs> I know. It's just, you know, it, it, you know we, we've been calling this a dental model of care. Uh, when we when we talk to patients, because patients know that oh, you go to the dentist every six months, whether you need it or not, and and you know what, if the dentist if the dentist if you come and the dentist says oh you're you're great, you know you've just you, you know I'm going to take a couple X-rays, everything looks good, you know have a cleaning, you you leave happy, you leave happy. I mean that's and if there's a little problem detected, it can be addressed and and mitigated. All I can say is I never, never leave the dental office happy. <laughs> well, but let me let me congratulate the, the two of you. I, I really would encourage our listeners to take a look at the article in PTJ. It's very nicely done. I'm very gratified to see it's getting a lot of attention on social media. So people are really paying attention to it. So kudos to both of you and your group of colleagues who put it together. I, I think it's important. And yeah. as, you, as you both are pointing out, there are additional challenges that need to be addressed. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing the results of that work. Yeah, well, thank you, Alan. I just a shout out to our co-authors. This was a lot of work for the big Great. team and we're very appreciative of everybody's work. And you know, thank you so much for having us and letting us talk about this. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and um, and I just I, I just want to echo the passion um, that that Terry is showing here. Like we could talk about this for probably another couple hours, but um, but thanks for the opportunity. It was, it was wonderful. This is an APTA podcast.